All right, so we are back for our final, I promise, final episode about Prison Hulks in our bonus series that we've been doing for Patreon. So this was supposed to be the February bonus episode. So for notational purposes, that's still what we'll call it, despite coming out on March 6th. So anyway, we are here to wrap up what we've done. So we, of course, being me and Taylor. Hi, Taylor. Hello. In part one of this bonus series, we focused on the use of prison ships during the American Revolution. We talked a lot about the prisoner exchange system mm-hmm. and some of the successes and failures of that. We talked a lot about British recruitment efforts from among American prisoners. Again, mm-hmm. some successes, some failures. Uh, we talked kind of about that conditional pardon system a little bit of right. you, know, you, you don't have to sit in prison or worse, on a prison ship, if you agree to serve in the British Army. Um, So we'll kind of talk about some of those same topics later on in this episode. In part two, we shifted our focus to the use of prison ships in Britain itself and in Australia. You know, we talked more about daily life on the hulks in a non-POW situation where you do have... more of like the work, like the work kind of situation. Yeah, you've got a bit more freedom. You know, you have a job in most cases, something to occupy your time when you're not at work, you know, doing some of that physical manual labor, your time is basically your own. Like, like we've said multiple times, like prison is always prison, but as far as being poor in Victorian England, like probably not the worst way to live. Like, yeah, I mean, every day. Yeah. Obviously it depends on your, your starting situation, but yeah, for some people, this, would have been a little bit of an improvement in certain areas. Right. Um, You know, things like clothing, having consistent food, even if it's not the best food. Right. Yeah. There are some advantages here that made it sort of not the worst possible outcome for someone. We of course ended our last episode with the brutal murder of prison inspector, John Giles Price. Yeah. um, Don't, uh, don't poke the bear, I guess in his case, like don't don't climb in the enclosure. Don't get in there with the bear. (laughs) <laughs> or maybe just treat the bear better yeah. so it doesn't yeah. want to do that to you. So this episode is kind of intended as a catch-all wrap-up episode covering a few things that I just didn't have time to fit in the first two. There's not really as coherent of a flow of information here, kind of just getting things in where I can get them. Right. So the first thing I want to cover here is a journal article called The Men of the Eleanor, 1831, uh-huh. a Case Study of the Hulks and Voyage to New South Wales. This is from Norma Townsend and David Kent. So this covers the story of one particular prison ship, the Eleanor, uh, which was a bark that departed from Portsmouth on February 19th, 1831. Is this a contemporary account or is this someone looking back? No, this is a, this is a, a recent study. Okay. Fairly recent. Sometime in the 20th century. Okay. What's interesting about this ship is who's on board. So on the Eleanor, there were 133 male convicts. Mm -hmm. These convicts had all been sentenced for their participation in the Swing Riots, a series of disturbances that swept through rural parts of southern England in 1830 and 1831. I've never heard of that, but it sounds really British. sounds really English. They're uh, pretty, like, in terms of, like, labor history, you know, specifically Mm -hmm. in, in, like, the 19th century when the stuff is starting to really get some legs under it, they're sort of a... not super successful in and of themselves, but kind of just like a seminal moment 
in labor organization. You could also draw parallels to the earlier groups like the Luddites, which Mm -hmm. are probably a more famous movement, at least just how it's entered the vocabulary in English. Right. The, The concepts are kind of the same. You see the same types of things happening where, you know, craftsmen and laborers wanting to sort of protect their piece in this puzzle of what they're providing to society are going to demonstrate pretty violently in some cases their opposition to industrialization and mechanization of different processes. There's a there's a book on the swing riot. It's called Captain Swing. It's by uh, Eric Hobsbawm and George Ruday. Pretty good read. Pretty engaging read. I would have it's pronounced a, that rude, just saying. I wasn't able to get... The, it's not as easy to add the accent marks on a PC as it is on a Mac, so I didn't <laughs> add it in the notes. So quoting from their book, the swing riots were, quote, the most impressive episode in the English farm laborers' long and doomed struggle against poverty and degradation. So like many labor struggles, kind of important for what it symbolizes rather than what it actually achieves. Right. But again, that paves the way for later things, uh, for for later people to to come along and follow up on that. Mm -hmm. And it, it at least puts it in the consciousness of the public that this is something that you can do. Is it, do you have a fan on or anything? I just heard like a weird, like almost groaning sound in the background occasionally. Oh, I think that's Josephine. <laughs> I was She's just snoring. Wondering. Oh, that's that's probably what it is. <laughs> Can you like hear it really well? I could a minute ago. I haven't heard it in a minute, but it sounded like a pa- a fan when it turns. You know, like, and sometimes they squeak a little bit. But it might have been her snoring. <laughs> I don't hear it anymore. But it was only in the beginning, okay. like for a couple times. Yeah, I think that was Josephine snoring because she's right here. Okay. She's (laughs) fine. (laughs) Uh, So you could draw the parallel to those earlier groups like the Luddites. And one of the things associated with this movement is machine breaking. Right. So continuing to quote from them, uh, the breaking of machines was to become the characteristic feature of the laborers movement of 1830. Machine breaking was only one of the numerous forms that the movement assumed. Uh, Other things that you'll see people charged with when you're looking through these lists of convicts, one of them is arson, you know, burning down shops, places where these machines would have operated. Right. Uh, Threatening letters. This is actually where the movement gets its name from. These were referred to as swing letters because of the way that they were signed. We'll see. I was going to ask about that. I was going to say, like, why why is it called the swing riots? I didn't know if it was Mm -hmm. a last name or something like that. Yeah, the answer to that is kind of. We're more straightforward in America with our rebellions. We're like, we're mad about whiskey. Whiskey Whiskey rebellion. Uh, Other things like wages meetings, you know, just general discussions, the kind of things you see in labor organization in the modern day of, you know, discussing wages and having that group solidarity. Uh, Attacks on justices and overseers, riotous assemblies to extract money or provisions, uh, or to enforce a reduction in rents or tithes. Uh, it's interesting that even meeting to discuss wages is illegal. Right. Classic time to remind uh, our modern listeners that, you know, when you start a new job and they say, you know, hey, you don't discuss your wages with each other. You can discuss them with management. That is illegal. And they're not allowed to do that. That's uh, true. It's always OK to talk about wages. Like I said, the, the movement got its name from these letters, these threatening letters that machine owners would receive. Mm-hmm. If you were the recipient of a swing letter, it would read something like this. 
I've got a couple of examples here drawn from that same book. So again, here's, here's the first one. Sir, this is to acquaint you that if your thrashing machines are not destroyed by you directly, we shall commence our labors. Signed on behalf of the whole, swing. Short and sweet. <laughs> yes, very short, but also very clear, very direct of if you don't stop using this machine or if you don't destroy this machine, we're going to do it for you. Uh, again, they don't explicitly say that. They say we shall commence our labors, but it's very, very clear what that means. It's interesting that like owning a machine almost puts you in a different class of person. Like it's almost like the equivalent of how landlords are kind of looked at today in by some people. You know what I mean? Right. You almost are seen as like being in a different class. Uh, like the machine owner is a class on itself. Which exactly. Fair, they're probably also landlords. Yes. Yeah. And in, in that case, that's basically what this is. If you if you own one of these machines, you possibly own multiple. You probably own different locations, different workshops, things like that, uh, different farms. You know, this is a mostly rural movement, uh, and that's kind of what they're going for. You see the threshing machines as the main target of this, something that could be done manually but was becoming more industrialized. But other things were sort of targeted as well. So I have another slightly longer example here with much more clearly stated consequences. In the first one, it kind of leads a little bit to imagination. You know, is this just is this just a threat against the machine or is this also a threat against personal safety of the owner? Mm -hmm. Uh, So in the second one, and you can't really hear this in the audio medium, but there's big differences in spelling in this one. Also, this next one. The spelling is is much less consistent with you know what you would consider to be well educated spelling. The first one is very clear, very sort of academic sounding. The second one really is not, at least in the written form. This is to inform you what you have to undergo. Gentlemen, if providing you don't pull down your machines and rise the poor men's wages, the married men give two and sixpence a day a day the single two shillings or we will burn down your barns and you in them. This is the last notice. Reading that and being able to see it, it looks like when you see Beowulf in like middle English and it sort of looks like something, you know, but like you also like, no, it's not modern. Right. And this is, this is more up to the writer themselves, probably having poor spelling or quote unquote, poor spelling Mm -hmm. um, rather than any sort of language change. But you can see it in things like the word machine is spelled M-E-S-H-E-N-E. Uh, you can see it in the word single, I'm, S-I-N-G-E-L. You I'm can see it begin spelling notice as N-O-T-I-S. I like that. Yeah, that's a, that's another good one. This is the last notice is N-O-T-I-S. Uh, so yeah, you see you see some of those things where you can see this person has an acquaintance. They they have the ability. They're literate, uh, but they don't have what you would probably call good spelling. They're also angry. <laughs> right. And again, this, this sort of highlights who is upset here. This is not the educated aristocratic class who is breaking these machines. This is workers. This is people who you know haven't had the luxury of focusing their lives up to this point on you know reading and writing and literacy. They have the ability, but not as polished as you might see from someone else. Mm-hmm. So I might be repeating some stuff here, but that's okay. Overall, more than 300 individuals would be convicted in connection with the swing riots and transported to New South Wales or Van Diemen's Land, the, the old name for Tasmania. 
So a key factor here, why this was of interest to me, this particular article on this particular ship, something important that made their experience different from other Hulk convicts was that they were already formed into a cohesive unit and they had a common cause. You know, they had organized together. They had protested together. You know, very often they'd been arrested and sentenced together as a group. So they, they had shared experiences even before this social unrest and these riots broke out. They had similar lifestyles. A lot of them had the same jobs. You're kind of seeing like a good example of class solidarity, but it's kind of forced because like, this is all the interaction these people have. Like You're, you're forced <laughs> to interact with your neighbor because that is your entire world. And you're going through these common experiences and having common problems. I would imagine pretty quickly, like you begin to feel a little bit of a collective kind of uh, organization happening mm-hmm. organically. It doesn't have to be, you know, like a, a formal process. I think that's that's even touched on a lot in in that book, Captain Swing. That book obviously very heavily focuses on the labor organization aspect of things. It points out, you know, things like. Even trades that would not be directly affected by this industrialization Mm -hmm. of the labor force, even those trades at times participated in this, again, out of that feeling of what must be some sort of class solidarity. One particular group that's mentioned is people in the smithing industry, so like blacksmiths, uh, things like that, participating in these, sometimes, you know, under pressure from their neighbors, probably because these people have some pretty useful tools if you want to break machines. But at the same time, you know, evidence for them participating willingly because of that class consciousness. It might not directly help them, but it does help their neighbors. And there's the idea that that kind of helps everyone. Right. So this pre-existing community was already formed when they entered these prison ships. You know, they didn't, on an individual level, have to sort of figure out how to survive there. They already had a big group that they, they could survive with and and sort of exist with. So this included, you know, social practices, even ways of speaking, you know, in their shared rural dialect. Most of these people are from rural areas. Most of them are from Southern England. They form a cohesive unit. Very often they were convicted along with close friends and family members. You know, if you've got a whole village that's that's participating in this, you're going to get sentenced with people you've known your whole life. Right. Quoting from that Eleanor article. The Eleanor Indent identifies four sets of brothers, a father and son, and a pair of cousins. On the Hulks in particular, such relationships could have provided an emotional and physical buffer between them and the common thieves, most of whom came from urban areas. We know from the evidence of Cunningham, an experienced and much-traveled surgeon on convict ships, who divided his charges into townies and yokels, (laughs) that each group had its own patois, which bound them more closely together. That is an interesting dynamic. I didn't really think about that, that you are getting those differences in the people that come from cities and the rural areas by this point, that they probably do have pretty different experiences. Yeah, it was especially interesting for me because the kind of the stereotypical prison ship in like the Georgian Victorian era is, I think most people probably think of, you know, a a street urchin who nicks a gentleman's pocket watch and Mm. he gets transported to Australia and there's that very like kind of dirty urban squalor sense of like who who is being transported to Australia. And this was the first thing I really saw that focused on rural use of the transportation punishment. So yeah, from a social perspective, this is really interesting. 
So for the convicts we're discussing today, they arrived on board the Hulk York between the 5th and 10th of February 1831 before they were actually transported. So here's where we kind of see the difference between a prison Hulk and a prison ship. Those Hulks Mm -hmm. are staying stationary. They're often used as temporary holding facilities. That was kind of their original intention was just a temporary thing. But here they're used as basically a staging area for these prisoners before they uh, actually take the trip to Australia. Quote, they were fitted out with a jacket, waistcoat, breeches, shirt, handkerchief, stockings, and shoes. These garments, however, did not mark them out as prisoners and were of equal, if not better quality than the clothes they would normally have worn. Interesting. <laughs> Welcome to prison. Here's some new clothes. So yeah, we see that. I mean, the, what they're being issued here is not like a prison uniform. This isn't like an orange jumpsuit that they're, they're being issued here. For some of them, maybe it was an upgrade. Uh, So those convicted during the swing riots had committed some of those acts that we mentioned before. So machine breaking arson, those types of things, even just the most of the general practices associated with protesting that in, well, theoretically, in a modern society, we would say is okay. This is not illegal. Most of those acts would have been considered against the law. Mm -hmm. Like you said, even just the assembly to discuss certain topics was was breaking the law. You can contrast that with some of the other offenses that these urban prisoners were were being convicted of. You see a lot of listings for things like murder, assaults, theft, sexual offenses, things like that. You see a lot more, it it tends to be a lot more violent from the urban convicts here. In general, those swing riot convicts were treated the same as any other convicts. You know, there's no sort of different way of dealing with them. Mm -hmm. A small difference might just be seen in the speed with which they're transported. Right. To probably to avoid that organization, I would imagine. Like you want these I, I would imagine. On. Yeah, like if they're gonna cause problems, let them do that in Australia. We don't need that mess here. It's it's also interesting that they're not the punishment is just being moved from where you live to somewhere else almost. Like they're not being treated in a punitive way all like like by you know they're giving new clothes and stuff like that. And part of me thinks too if you're colonizing Australia, you need people that know how to grow things. Mm-hmm. You can't just arrest street urchins and send them there and expect them to do it. Like, oh, all of these guys know how to grow things and they know animal husbandry and that stuff. Yeah, we need some of them over there. Go send them to Australia. Yeah, we'll see that play out a little bit in terms of the the punitive nature of this and how the, the justice system worked in general. Because, yeah, you're exactly right. There's There's a lot of benefit. We touched on that before. The empire wants to wring out every bit of use that it can, you know, even if parts of society might consider you useless, you can do something for the empire. Right. Yeah. So it was talking about that difference in the speed with which they were, you know, processed through the system. In previous parts of this, we've talked about convicts languishing on these hulks for months, years, some of them even up to the full extent of their sentence. Um, you know, their, their full seven years of, quote, transportation being spent on a hulk sitting in the Thames. None of the Eleanor prisoners spent more than two weeks on board the York before beginning the voyage to Australia. That's crazy. That's so quick. This is, this is like an expedited transportation. Mm-hmm. Uh, another factor to keep in mind here is that this is happening in 1831. So this is well into the operation of the Hulk and transportation system. You know, they've yeah, been operating their for, stride. They've been operating for 50-ish years at this point. This is a well-oiled bureaucratic machine, to quote that article. So as we talked about previously, confinement on the Hulks was relatively free compared to other forms of incarceration. 
you know, it was probably preferable to being locked in a jail cell. Some of the convicts would have been kept in chains up until arriving on the York. But once aboard, they would have had, you know, similar schedules to what we described in the last episode. Free run of the decks in the relative sense. Opportunities for work ashore and on the ship, you know, chances to move around and interact with people that maybe weren't available in a prison on land. Right. Quote, the prisoners seem not to have found the labor particularly onerous, and they actually received some pay for doing it. This work certainly had a great number of advantages over its alternative, spending all day in solitary confinement in a cell picking oakum or some other mindless, repetitive tasks, which drove many insane. I think that's interesting because it kind of also points out, like, these people weren't living glamorous lives prior to this. Mm -hmm. Like, this is actually better for some people, probably. Yeah, like we talked about last week with the work around the shipyards, the sort of demanding physical labor of constructing things and dredging, dredging harbors and rivers, and just in that general physical labor, not terribly different than what they would have been accustomed to in the first place for some of these right. rural convicts. So yeah, I mean, all things considered, if this is the punishment, it could be worse. Yeah, I feel like the, the punishment here really is the, the restriction of movement, rather than right. like the work itself, or something like that. Like the punishment is you, you are confined. And when you put it in the context of the time too, this is not a time when you can just sort of take a week vacation and zip over to Europe whenever you want. And you're, you're probably staying relatively stationary anyway. Mm -hmm. A few members of the group, they even had previous experience as sailors. Uh, among mm -hmm. these were Robert Mason and George Shergold. So for them, especially these shipboard tasks are really nothing new. Maybe maybe they even enjoyed going back to their old uh, their old activities they used to do. No, that is interesting. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> or not. <laughs> regarding conditions on the ships, quoting here again from that same article. Even in the earliest days when conditions on the hulks at Woolwich on the Thames were at their worst, they compared favorably with those on convict ships to the American colonies. Prisoners on the hulks were healthier than those of the same class imprisoned in many other places in England, and especially those in London. They were better fed, as they had to be, in order to do the work, which is an important part of their daily routine. Most importantly, management held out some hope to the prisoners by providing for remissions and pardons. It's just really interesting. It feels... Like this, this system is almost better than some of the things we do today. And right. like they provide a routine and structure and work, but like there is no punishment beyond that. Like the punishment again is like the restriction on movement rather than like you will be punished by this being a horrible experience. Like it's not a great <laughs> experience. You know, it's, it's no worse than what they would have dealt with otherwise. Like we've, we, we've said, I hate to be like pro prison ship almost in this, but like, <laughs> I don't know. It, is, it doesn't sound as bad as I thought it would be. It brings into question, you know, when, when someone is incarcerated, what is the punishment intended to be? Is it the incarceration mm -hmm. itself? Or are you also sentencing this person to, you know, five, 10 years of uh, mental torture and degradation? Is that also part of the sentence? Because that's, that's probably going to happen, at least in the, in the American prison system we have. Yeah. It just feels much less punitive overall, mm -hmm. rather than like, this is the penalty that you have to pay, and this is what you have to do for that time, versus like you said, like some of the mental and those kind of punishments that are issued today. There's a more reform-minded uh, sense to most of this, and one could probably see that playing out in 
that murder that we talked about of John Giles Price, he sort of isn't playing by the rules, you know, by turning this into a sadistic, brutal regime. He's not really upholding the system that sort of everyone is expecting. So you could kind of see that coming out in the hostility of the convicts towards him and in the way that it's received by the general public. No one, yeah, no, no one, one really cares. misses the guy. No one, no one laments the fact that he has been hammered to death on the beach because again, he, he's not really playing by the system as it's, as it's established. It seems right. some of the sharpest criticism from prisoners themselves comes not for the conditions of the hulks, but for their fellow guests. <laughs> uh, obviously life on the prison hulks would have been pretty jarring for some of the swing rioters and these other sort of non-standard convicts. If you live in London here, if you're a, you know, a member of the urban poor in London, you're used to close quarters. You're used to cramped conditions. You're used to not having great drinking water, probably used to not having enough food, used to dealing with disease, all the things that are going to come up on these prison hulks. Again, not to say that like you'd enjoy it, but you'd have a little bit of preparation for some of these conditions. If you're used to living in a more open environment, in a rural setting, this is going to be a big change. Uh, One example here is the Tullpuddle martyr, George Loveless. The Tullpuddle martyrs are another interesting early example of labor organization that I don't really have time to discuss here. But again, this is a time when a lot of this early labor history is happening. Tullpuddle sounds like an exceptionally British word. Yes. And I'm... I assume I'm saying that right. I've never heard it said out loud before. Loveless described his fellow convicts as monsters as I never expected to see and whose conduct I am not capable of describing. (laughs) Hulk conditions vary from ship to ship. We've sort of established that. But according to the testimony of convict witnesses in 1831 and 1832, there was drinking, gaming, smoking, singing, dancing, and talking. They had no complaints about the food and could buy goods freely from vendors who came on board. At the end of the evening, quote, we all break up just like a public house shutting up. Interesting. Painting a picture here of a pretty jolly environment. Now, I will add one caveat to that. So this was testimony at a at sort of a public hearing about the conditions on the hulks. Not to needlessly go conspiracy brain. These are convicts and former convicts testifying about the conditions of the prison hulks. This is a public testimony. It would benefit the prison establishment for these things to sound good. And also, I mean, I imagine you're not dealing with rich people that are testifying here. What's a few pence to, to be like, hey, I need you to say some nice things. Right. You want to eat, eat well tonight? Here you go. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's evidence that this is totally the case. Like this, There's more support for this just from just than these witnesses, but just to lay everything out there, it would have benefited a magistrate or some sort of overseer type position to make sure that this testimony sounded good. You know, whatever you had to do to do that, a fair warning there. So let's talk a little bit about health. This was an interesting part of the story. Uh, So conditions on the hulks, which, you know, these were established stationary settings varied from the conditions on board the sailing vessels actually used for the transportation process. Mm -hmm. Uh, So according to Townsend and Kent, for the time period of 1788 to 1840, the mortality rate among prisoners being transported was 1.8%. 
It's actually a lot uh, lower than I thought. Yeah, it, it doesn't paint the gruesome picture that one might expect. So this is about 2,500 convicts out of the roughly 142,000. That's still a significant number of people. But mm-hmm. for the time, for the conditions, not quite as high as you might expect. However, early in this period, from 1788 to 1799, this rate was significantly higher. So if you kind of zoom in on the data here, it goes way, way up, uh, the rate being 18.7%. That's much more in line with what I kind of thought mm-hmm. it would be. Yeah, so you're looking at almost one-fifth of the convicts involved um, is that, dying is that- in the process. Mostly like disease based. Is that including like shipwreck disaster type situations? Yeah, so that's really an interesting point you make. Obviously, reading through all of this, keeping an eye towards those those shipwreck aspects of it whenever those come up. The deaths on these ships were not one hundred percent due to disease, but they weren't due to shipwreck. Interesting. Uh, no convict ship ever foundered in over 400 voyages to Australia during the period of transportation to New South Wales. Huh. Um, so this this was not a thing that happened. And then continuing on here, no convict ship was wrecked at all before 1833. So I don't know specifically where that first one wrecked, but it was outside of the New South Wales region. It may have been going directly to Tasmania or another part of Australia. This is interesting because you kind of have the concept in your head that these are old, decrepit, rotting vessels, but Mm -hmm. apparently they're not. Yeah, like we said, I think in the first episode we talked about there's a lot of evidence against the idea that these were, you know, rotting, unseaworthy vessels. We talked about the Bellerophon that carried Napoleon to Britain being turned into a prison hulk almost immediately you're probably not going to put the captive emperor on a ship that's going to sink in the channel. Yeah. And I guess like we've also kind of said, like these convicts hold value of making Mm -hmm. it to Australia or making it to Tasmania. Like there's a reason you want them there so you can extract labor from them. Like it Mm -hmm. benefits you to get them there in relatively good shape, I would imagine. So there's that aspect of the trip. It is overall beneficial for the empire to get these people to their destination. Like you just said, there's another side of this thing. Because uh, money is playing a bigger and bigger part in everything here. Capitalism is on the rise. Mm-hmm. If a ship could pick up cargo on the way back, that was awesome. Otherwise, you've got a wasted trip. And it's a long trip. You're literally describing my current job. <laughs> exactly. Um. So I believe, is backhauling the term for this? Uh, that would be a term, a deadhead backhaul, anything like that. So yeah, if a ship could pick up cargo in the you know the territory of the former East India Company, and bring it back, that would be more money for everyone. So stopping in, you know, there's tons of places over there where there's things that Europeans want. And if you can pick some of that up and bring it back, that's great. You could look Uh, like a hero when you arrive with like 100 pounds of coriander and people have never seen coriander before. (laughs) I took away your convicts and I brought you back some spices. (laughs) Enjoy. So yeah, I mean, obviously for that, if you're going to engage in some trade also, you want a solid seaworthy ship. You don't want something that's, that's, that's leaking and falling apart. You know, even if you didn't necessarily see that as necessary for the convicts themselves, you might, you know, if you're a, yeah, if you are a profit minded captain, which I think at this point, probably most of them are, you're thinking about, well, what else can I do here? You probably want a good ship for that. So back to the hulks themselves for a bit, which did have their own issues with death and disease, you know, despite these relatively good conditions, 
there's an article I'm going to use here called Coroner's Inquisitions on the Deaths of Prisoners in the Hulks at Portsmouth, England in 1817 to 1827. Uh, Before we start this part, I just want to say that like in this time period, anytime you assemble more than like 10 people together for any length of time, (laughs) I feel like you're running the risk of like there being rampant Victorian weird diseases popping up. Yeah, like boom, typhus. Yeah, like you can't have more than like 10 people like around each other for any length of time. Because of the disease and also because the government has made it illegal because you might be talking about wages. (laughs) Yes, both of those things. (laughs) Um, Or like speaking the Irish language. Um, (laughs) So this article notes that uh, from August 1776 to March 1778, the Justitia, that was the first ever truly designated prison hulk, lost 176 out of 632 prisoners. So that's just a little bit shy of one-third. It's about 28%. That is not good. And that is much much higher than the even the super-high 18% we had just talked about for the transportation shifts. Efforts were then made to reduce the mortality rate, you know, improving food, improving clothing, improving bedding, all of the little things that would make life a little bit more survivable. Mm-hmm. So in 1779, when John Howard, who was a prison reformer, visited the hulks, he found that, quote, the ships were clean. The prisoners' bread and beer were good, but their beef was not. <laughs> some men were poorly clothed. Some prisoners were sick, but Howard does not say how many. So again, what he's describing here is for what we're thinking about a Georgian era prison, pretty good. Right. You know, the fact that only some of the men are poorly clothed, only some of them are sick. They have bread and beer. Sure, the beef could improve a little bit, but, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, conditions like this would fluctuate, obviously. This is, again, a long span of time these are being used. Different people right. are in charge of overseeing these things. Different personnel in all these different positions. Uh, so in 1802, it's noted that prisoners on the Hulk La Fortune were dying of starvation while, quote, the officers on the Hulks appear in perfect health. Interesting that they only said like officers. Are, are, right. are they using that term to mean officers of the crew or are they using that term to mean like officers, like a uh, officer that's watching the, the convicts, I guess. But I would like to know how like the regular enlisted people on that yeah. are. It's it not may not explicit- be that different than the prisoners. <laughs> it's not explicitly noted there. It could easily be just referring to the officers. However, it is, I believe, a civilian report. So mm-hmm. it, it very well could just be used as like a catch-all term for a military the crew, person. The crew, yeah, like the yeah. crew of the vessel. So Jeff James writes that, quote, sleeping conditions were very cramped and provided ideal conditions for the transfer of various diseases, including typhus and tuberculosis. Ah, uh, yes. Clothing was basic but sufficient and the diet adequate, being, quote, no worse than that served on naval vessels, uh, according to the Hulk overseers. While the water available to inmates was probably similar in quality to that then available to most of the inhabitants of London. I think something we can't overstate is life sucked in general back then. <laughs> well, especially in London. And here we're talking about, you know, the 17, 1800s. But if you read about, you know, like the city of London in, say, the 1600s, you know, the Stuart era. It's just a gross place. It's just, it's just a disgusting place to live. The odds of catching diseases is much, much higher than if you're living in a rural area. 
so yeah, this this idea, this kind of urban crush, is again a, a pretty similar situation to to what some of these convicts are already used to. You know, it's it's at very least not a downgrade. Yeah, and and something here to to keep in mind, it's hard from this area is just just the idea of having clean drinking water or even somewhat clean drinking water is a bit of a luxury for some of these people. Right. Uh, so there's an interesting list of causes of death that's given in this, uh, in this study from 1817 to 1827. Mm-hmm. The bulk are kind of from the usual suspects in this time period and these conditions. So you've got your consumption, mm-hmm. uh, you've got pneumonia, you've got dysentery. All the heavy uh, hitters. Yeah, all of those account for 98 of the deaths here. The total deaths being, I think, 188. And 98 of those are from these, kind of the the three kings. <laughs> Nine of these are from typhus. Three are from a, quote, disease of the brain. I'm so curious to know how they diagnosed that at that point in history. Yeah, and I wasn't quite sure because... I. At first, I thought maybe maybe are they talking about a stroke, but that is listed separately elsewhere. So I don't think that's what it is. Like, it could just we're, be we're fully in the like there's ghosts in your blood. Yes, <laughs> uh, basically three of I don't know how to pronounce this. Erysipelas, erysipelas, sure. a bacterial skin infection that, that killed three sound, of these people. That doesn't sound pleasant. Two from quote mortification. Okay. Uh, which a, a careful reader might guess is just a contemporary term for gangrene or necrosis. Two of peritonitis, which is inflammation due to a rupture in the intestine. No, thank you. Uh, and two of syphilis, ah. uh, our old friend. One from, quote, decay of nature. I do love the way that they write back then. Uh, I'm assuming he was just old. Yes, this convict was 82. Wow. Uh, okay. Which, yeah, just to live that long in these conditions, some of it, some of it's spent on a prison hulk. Pretty good. I guess that does go to show you that old thing of like how um, death, like average age, is kind of a skewed statistic from back then. <laughs> but like, there were plenty of people that lived in their seventies and eighties. Yeah. It's just the childbirth was, or child like birth during, uh, or death during birth was so common that it brought yeah. down the average age quite a bit. But like there were yeah, there's old the concept, right? Yeah, there's the concept that like, oh, if you lived to fifty, you were like an old man, and it's like not really. It's kind of considered the same as a fifty year old now, you know, give or take. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's not like it's not like these people had never seen an old person before. It was it was probably just a much more unpleasant eighty year old man because probably you didn't have the hip replacement, you couldn't have you know surgeries on eyes and things like that. Like it was it was probably a much harder eighty. Yeah, like a heart valve replacements, things like that. So you probably had to be just much, uh, much better off in the genetic lottery if you wanted to live to eighty. Yeah. Would you want? Would you want to live to eighty though? At the time, I don't think I don't. Not on a prison shift. <laughs> yeah. One of these deaths was from insisted abdominal dropsy. Ah, uh, good old dropsy. Yeah, dropsy just an dropsy just an old term for the buildup of excess fluid. Uh, at least in some cases in modern medicine, we'd call it edema, mm-hmm. um, but it's sort of been differentiated out into more specific things now. So I don't think a doctor is going to diagnose anyone with dropsy now. <laughs> One from obstipation of the bowels, 
No thanks. It's never good. Uh, and one from Water on the Brain, uh, or Hydrocephalus is what we would call that now. Just a buildup of fluid around the brain that can <laughs> like put pressure on the brain, and it will kill you if it's not uh, dealt with. So in summary, the article concludes that in addition to the risk of fatal occupational accidents, the convicts were exposed to conditions that resulted in death rates from sickness, particularly consumption and other pulmonary diseases, dysentery and typhus, that were twice as high as the death rate of the same age groups in the English population as a whole. So all of that kind of we said about the conditions themselves not being that different. And that's true, the conditions aren't. But remember, this is in a fully enclosed environment where no one can leave. There's there's no way to spread out. There's no way to get away from this stuff. Um, yeah, and I would imagine also, like, just by the nature of their work, like, farm workers probably just had a higher degree of accidents and things back then compared to if you lived in an urban area and you were doing whatever it is you do. Farm work, by its nature, could be a lot more dangerous with threshing machines and working with animals mm-hmm. and all these tools. Like, I would imagine back then being a farmer is a more dangerous job anyway. Yeah. Yeah, probably. You know, just despite all the things that you could say about the Hulks being not so bad overall, it's very hard to get around the fact that, yes, disease was pretty rampant, at, mm-hmm. you know, put in relation to how it was for the general population. That goes back to my 10 people in one space theory. Yes, exactly. Bad. <laughs> so the last thing I want to talk about here to wrap up is pardon refusers. Okay. In the first episode on prison hulks, we talked a little bit about that pardon system in place for American POWs, how this tied in, in with uh, recruiting for the British forces in North America and the Caribbean. Prisoners sometimes had the option of reducing their sentences if they agreed to serve with the British army. You know, this service could be rendered in the American colonies. We saw some of that in episode one. Although there was another option for those who maybe didn't want to fight against their uncle or their cousin or their brother. They could serve in the West Indies, you know, in the Caribbean. That was another choice. But that Uh, was also like the most dangerous choice, correct? However, yes, we've been talking so much about disease in urban settings. This was the best way to catch a disease being posted to the West Indies. To the extent that you could have, you know, officers resign their commission, which they had had to pay a lot of money for if they were going to be assigned to the Caribbean. Uh, I guess it also should be telling that, like, they're offering you a pardon to go somewhere. It's probably not because they're doing it for fun. It's because they can't get people to go there. Yeah. Yeah. If they need people this badly that they're recruiting American POWs, it's probably not somewhere that people want to go. Also, what a change between back then and now. Nowadays, you'd be like, oh, West Indies? Sure, sounds nice. And that's uh, something to always keep in mind is like doing this research and, you know, thinking now, like, you know, why would why would someone agree to go to the West Indies? And it's like now looking back at it, you know, we, we can look at statistics. We can see that there's this mortality rate of, you know, X, Y, Z percent for people sent there. And at the time, it's a known thing that you might not come back, you know, from the Caribbean. but it's probably not as, I don't know, understood. There's probably a much easier way to say, well, it probably won't happen to me, so I might as well right. give it a shot. It's better than dying here in this prison cell. Mm-hmm. So a group of pardon refusers is detailed in the article, Raising Sand, Soil, and Gravel, Pardon Refusers on Board Prison Hulks, 1776 to 1815. This era is rightfully known for its harsh punishments for minor crimes, like theft, trespassing, things like that. A wide range of stuff could get you a death sentence. But 
Pardons were also an integral part of that system, and death sentences were carried out far, far less than they were ordered. Uh, so that was kind of like the thing, like sentenced to death, and then we we bring it back from there, basically. Yeah, and it was kind of all centered around that concept of clemency and mercy. You're in this situation where you know you, you don't have the same modern legal protections that that we do now. So it is very, very based on sort of the whims of the people involved in the sentencing. And mm-hmm. to keep that order in place in society, it benefited everyone to show that mercy was an option. So quoting here, the criminal justice system at this time relied heavily on pardoning to avoid collapsing under its own weight. A freer conditional pardon from the king was the hope of almost every capital convict in the 18th century. It epitomized the discretionary element of the law and the use of mercy in justifying the social order. So this idea that, you know, if I'm a judge, I'm a magistrate, I understand the law, I know what I'm doing here, I can show clemency as I deem fit. And that's why I'm better than you, <laughs> or thief, you, you poor, dumb, rural farmer person. So yeah, this idea that mercy is so intrinsic to the system that looks on paper very, very draconian, and sometimes it was, but in reality, those harsh punishments kind of only exist so that they can be pulled back and shown, right. see, the king loves you. See, the system works. So like we've said, those conditional pardons are most of the time contingent on service in the British Army. We discussed that system in the American Revolution. It was still in place during the French Revolutionary Wars, those leading into the Napoleonic Wars. They still needed any troops they could get, basically, and prisoners was a good place to get them. Makes sense. Those who got that offer of a conditional pardon, they had four basic options. You could reject the pardon and just serve out your sentence in the hulks. You could reject the pardon and await transportation. You could accept it and serve in the army, like we've touched on. Or you could reject the offer in hope of a full pardon. This would come via, there was an appeal process. So you do see at times lawyers getting involved with this and, you know, appealing someone's case, arguing that this person doesn't need to to be sentenced to anything. And occasionally it works. Is that something where that person happens to be more educated or of means, I wonder? Or is it almost like today you'll see like a cause du jour sometimes amongst celebrities? I'm wondering, yeah. if like, you know, is there a certain cause that gets picked up by people of upper society that's like, hey, this person, I, I know him and he's not a bad guy, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm fully speculating here, but just living in a society where this does so frequently happen, where, you know, justice is carried out so unequally, you know, one person might become a cause celeb nationally or internationally, while another person in a arguably worse situation is totally ignored, you know, mm-hmm. usually because of their social class or their skin color. Here, you could kind of understand that, you know, maybe a poor, honest farmer who's been railroaded, you know, by his landlord might become a popular cause. Whereas, you know, we've talked about like a a 15-year-old street urchin who steals a loaf of bread. No one cares about him because there's thousands more like him. Right. Again, I'm not using a particular instance here, but one could easily see how that would play out. For sure. So it's important to point out that although there is scholarship on pardon refusers, it's because of how rare they were, not because it was common. Right. Most convicts that were offered a pardon accepted it. It was the... I would have to think, right? Like, you're, that's a pretty bold game to play, to be like, no, no, I'm going to hold out. Yeah, because, like, again, we, we've talked about how everything is kind of at the whim of the people doing it. Like, 
it's not out of the question that they could suddenly decide, you know what, that capital sentence, let's, let's just go with that instead. Um, you really never know in this situation. Right. right. That's sort of the system working as intended, you know, keeping these prisoners beholden to these individuals rather than to a codified, uh, you know, written down system of that has a little bit more calculus to it. Right. You know, reasons for refusing a pardon could vary, but, you know, two broad justifications would be one, pragmatism you know, holding out for that full pardon and trying to avoid the risk of service in the army. Like, yes, it was a way yeah. out, but, but inherently you're serving in the army. You're going to go fight Napoleon. You could get killed. And, and I feel like fighting Napoleon's like best case, right? Like worst case you end up stationed in Nevis or somewhere like that in mm-hmm. the Caribbean. And like, that's not great. Yeah. And you've, it's gotta be going through your head. Like, you know, if I'm in a, if I'm a, a conscript, if I'm a, uh, someone who's forced into the army, like, they might be just trying to, you know, use me up before they send in the professionals. So you, you might be at a higher risk of being killed. So that strategy still seems relevant today. Yes. You might be the one in that, uh, that forlorn hope they're going to use to, you know, storm a fortress. <laughs> Another one, you know, easily could be ideological, hmm. refusing to sort of play along with the system and serve the empire. I feel like those are the ones where it doesn't work out as well when you're trying to prove a point. Or something like that. Like, that's got to be when they're just like, okay, well, you can serve your full sentence on the ship. Enjoy. Yeah, you see much less of this. At, at times reading this, I was tempted to sort of draw parallels with, like, the Irish Republican movement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, things like hunger strikes. And right. it's not really a great parallel. You, you don't really see the same amount of that ideological conviction of, you know, no, I'm not doing this because of my ideological convictions. I didn't really see anything in the, in the little bit of research I did that ever really showed a definitive case of, you know, this person did it for this reason. You know, someone who has that sort of bigger empire-wide consciousness, sure, you could see, you know, maybe they just say, no, I'm not going to I'm not gonna serve in the army because I'm not going to give you anything, basically. You kind of can remove yourself from the, from the vicious circle by refusing this. So according to Lynn McKay, quote, the pardon refusers were cognizant of their leverage. They had the power to resist, though not necessarily to win. You know, this is something you see in other liberation struggles and labor movements and things like that. Sometimes the resistance itself really is the leverage that you have, Mm -hmm. even if that doesn't directly lead to a victory for you or your cause. The fact that you're doing it is important in itself. Right. Interesting factor in these Hulk refusers is that they were generally young by comparison to other convicts. So there's not really a great answer for why that is. One possible theory floated out was, you know, maybe these younger convicts are less willing to potentially throw away their lives in the army. You know, maybe if I'm a young person, I think it's just it's just seven years. You know, maybe I'm maybe I'm 25 when I get out. And, you know, that's still a good full life ahead of you. Why would I risk that? Also, young convicts may not have had any previous criminal record and therefore felt more likely to receive a full pardon. You know, if they're not, if the, the system isn't worried that you're going to recidivize, is that a word? Um, yeah, re- I think so. If you're, you're going to reoffend, maybe you think you're more likely to get a pardon. Hey, if the, if, if the first thing I ever did wrong was, you know, breaking into that jewelry shop and I've never done anything bad in my life, maybe they'll just give me a full pardon. So I don't really want to accept this conditional pardon too early. This is like the TV commercials with the, the ambulance chaser lawyers where they're like, don't accept the first offer. Uh, and that's <laughs> kind of the idea here. Maybe I could get something better. 
It's a bold strategy in this scenario. Yes. You have not much leverage. Yes. When like potentially one of the options is being hanged, it's very <laughs> bold. I got a feeling um, I would be uh, getting that red coat and, and going on an adventure if it was uh, offered to me. Yeah. We would be reenacting the Sharps series. Sharps yes, exactly. Series. So some of the data from this study, just kind of summarize, the average age of these refusers was 27. Most of them came from London and the home counties. All of them were convicted of theft with 80% sentenced to seven years transportation. 28% of the refusers served more than seven years on the hulks. Whereas the non-refusers in the control group in this study, only 6% served more than seven years. Interesting. Uh, so it kind of shows that in the long run, this pardon refusal ended up getting you more time than you might otherwise. That's uh, uh, that's what I would expect, honestly. I mean, like you said, I think some of this is resistance for resistance sake almost. Mm-hmm. They were twice as likely to eventually be transported. So we said how you know some prisoners did spend their whole time on the halts and never were actually sent to Australia. If, if you were refusing that conditional pardon, you were twice as likely to actually be transported. 32% versus 14%. Makes sense. I mean, you're not getting out of it by, mm-hmm. by joining the army. Yeah. Uh, so the majority would ultimately survive their time in the hulks, though. So, I mean, from a survival standpoint, sure, you could say by refusing this conditional pardon, just serving out this time. Yeah, it, it took a long time, but you survived if the conditions weren't that bad, maybe it wasn't even a terrible experience. Maybe it was better than serving in the army, you know, being sent to India or the West Indies or fighting bony. I would imagine being like younger also helped that a little bit. Right. I mean, if you're, if the age skewed young, you're probably more likely to survive. Yeah. I think that's part of it too. Like all of these numbers, you could kind of look at them from different directions. But yeah. But I would reason. also assume that like it's impossible to track how many joined the army and died in the army. Like I, I imagine like I'd love to know what that percentage is, but <laughs> it's like impossible to know, I would imagine. Right. And that's I think that's explicitly mentioned in one of these articles about how those who did accept the pardon, it's kind of they sort of disappear because mm. there's there's no real recording of that. You know, every enlisted soldier who died in service of the British Empire is not recorded, you know, probably doubly so if you were a, a convict, convict who accepted a pardon. So, yeah, it's kind of hard to know. It's kind of hard to, to wrap up that thread because we don't really have a mortality rate for people who joined the army. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, that's it. Uh, that's really what I've got here, what I was able to assemble. Just wanted to wrap things up here. It's been sort of hanging over us for a few months. Um, so yeah, I wanted to wrap wrap this up and we can move on to some different stuff in the bonus episodes. Um, we will yeah. be doing another another bonus episode for March. Uh, this one is you know technically the February episode. So there will be another one. So don't worry there, uh, Patreon subscribers. And uh, I think we'll wrap things there. We have another episode to do. Yep, yep, we do. And thank you guys for being Patreon subscribers. We definitely appreciate it. And yeah, it'll be exciting. We'll uh, we'll talk about something different than prison hulks now. All right. As Taylor said, thank you all for being patrons of the show. And uh, and we will talk to you again soon.